Uh, it's my pleasure this morning to introduce uh, our special guest, uh, uh, former Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs, Dr. Arturo Valenzuela. The origin of this program actually began last October when, as you may recall, uh, around the time that Argentina was electing a new government, protests erupted in capitals across South America. Uh, surprisingly, in some of the nations with the most successful economies and most successful uh, records of improving the lot of their citizens uh, economically and socially. In Santiago, Chile, for example, uh, or in Bogota, Colombia, where uh, the, one of Latin America's most successful economies was also overcoming through a peace program, uh, a half century of civil violence. Uh, protests erupted in Quito, Ecuador, in Bolivia, these protests overthrew the socialist government of uh, Evo Morales and replaced it with an interim government that's still struggling to elect a permanent successor uh, government. Uh, the circumstances of each of these protests were different. The particulars varied, but that they coincided was unmistakable. As it happens, our special guest this morning uh, has been consulted by the governments affected by this violence uh, at the end of last year and earlier this year, uh, and before the coronavirus shut down transport uh, worldwide, um, uh, has had firsthand experience of what was in fact propelling this region-wide phenomena in Latin America. But in the meanwhile, October seems a million years away in coronavirus terms. And a new challenge has swept over Latin America as a region, just as it has the rest of the world. And that is coping with the coronavirus pandemic. I can think of no one better qualified or better positioned to address these and other recent developments in Latin America than Dr. Arturo Valenzuela. Currently, the Senior International Affairs Advisor for Latin America at the law firm of Covington and Burling. Arturo has served, as I mentioned, as former Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs for most of President Obama's first term. And since most of us or many of us participating this morning in this webinar have served in the Western Hemisphere, uh, more in the Caribbean than in Central or South America, uh, we're all familiar with the Assistant Secretary uh, for Western Hemisphere Affairs as our day-to-day um, uh, -day boss, I guess you might say, in those posts. But prior to that service, uh, Arturo served in President Clinton's administration as the Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director of the National Security Council Staff for Latin American Affairs, and prior to that in President Clinton's first term, as Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Western Hemisphere Affairs. In between and prior to Arturo's government service, he was Professor of Political Science and International Relations at Georgetown University and the founder and director of Georgetown's Center for Latin American Studies. Uh, he's now Professor Emeritus at Georgetown from those roles. And before joining the Georgetown faculty in 1987, he served as professor of political science and head of the uh, Council for Latin American Studies at Duke University. With that kind of background, there's no one better to uh, share with us the latest on Latin America's various challenges. And with that, I turn the podium over to my friend and colleague, Arturo Valenzuela. Well, thank you very, very much for this uh introduction. It's my pleasure to be able to join you virtually. Uh, I hope that uh, my skylight doesn't get too bright with the sun that comes over, but occasionally clouds will uh, uh, give me some dispensation so that I'll be able to uh, uh, be less illuminated uh, as we go through this conversation. Let me start out uh, by making a couple of observations regarding the coronavirus uh, crisis. There's so simply, uh, this is affecting the entire uh, world as we know at this particular point. And uh, the uh, 
the issues of public health are really very serious everywhere, uh, although uh, it's impacted some countries more than others. Uh, I've recently had an opportunity to discuss the issue with the uh, uh, Secretary General of the Pan American Health Organization and others. Uh, and uh, Haiti, for example, is really suffering from the situation very, very severely. Uh, and there's no country probably that's going to be impacted as much as Venezuela it's, itself. Uh, and I'm going to mention Venezuela shortly uh, at the top of this discussion because I think we, we really need to sort of focus on the fact that it, it is set apart. Uh, uh, but beyond the public health uh, uh, crisis, uh, you know, we, we've heard a lot of commentary about the interruption of industrial production chains and value chains and so on and so forth. Uh, for Latin America, more generally, uh, the real problem is, in fact, the, the, the disruption as well of the, the entire world economy, including the export from Latin America of commodities like copper and petroleum and uh, uh, soybeans and other things like that, that, uh, that of course, uh, have ground to a halt adding uh, uh, you know additional uh, distress to economies that that are that are also quarantined uh, where you have uh, so this 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 could have an impact Latin America you know was on a very good trajectory before the Great Depression uh, things were looking fairly good and then the Great Depression came and that's when much of the institutional uh, development of the country came to a grinding halt and let's let's hope that maybe we won't be seeing the same sort of thing at this particular point. Uh, let, let, let me, however, uh, uh, clarify at the top of this conversation that, 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 that the phenomenon that we've been looking at is different from countries. Uh, and um, I, I wanna stress that because there's been uh, a, an assumption that, 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 that there are commonalities. Of course, there are certain kinds of common strains. Uh, but uh, you know, Latin American politics 101 was always a class about how, in fact, we should not discuss the countries in the region as being all sort of equal. They have different trajectories, different histories, different backgrounds, and so on and so forth. Some were able to consolidate democratic institutions at a very early age stage. Others uh, are not. Uh, there really is a very significant difference between the countries of the Caribbean uh, and the rest of Latin America. You know, when I served first in the State Department as a Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Clinton administration, uh, I was in charge of the relation with Mexico. Uh, it was the American Republic's area. Uh, that was the, the name of the, the bureau uh, at the time. It became uh, WHA later uh, when that bureau uh, in the State Department that puts acronyms on things, uh, you know, goes to work. Uh, I'm kidding about that, obviously. Uh, uh, but why did it become Western Hemisphere uh, area? Because the Caribbean uh, and Canada actually were passed on into the, the Bureau of, of uh, uh, the American Republics area, and they weren't republics. So there are really are some really significant differences in the background of those particular countries. Um, but to get to the to, to right to the to 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 the point of what we want to share today, uh, let's let's underscore the fact that that there are some real real differences uh, in the crisis that came before even the pandemic uh, uh, arrived in countries like Venezuela, Colombia, Bolivia, uh, Ecuador, and, and so on. In the case of Venezuela, we see uh, the most catastrophic collapse of an economy, of a country, of a political system uh, in Latin America, probably since the 19th century when Paraguay was destroyed practically literally uh, in the War of the Triple Alliance, uh, where 50% of the population, male population of the country uh, uh, died. It's just, it's, it's unfathomable to think of a country that was uh, the highest uh, in per capita income in Latin America it, it, not too long ago, uh, is essentially collapsed. And we can have some conversation about that uh, later on or some questions if you want to. Uh, the crisis in Colombia, you know, is different from the, 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 the one in Chile or in, in Bolivia because in some ways too, you have the, the challenge in Colombia of the, of the peace process that has not been fully concluded. And so there, the, the, the elements of the peace process uh, are, are there as well. Uh, and the crisis in Bolivia uh, responded to a bad election, uh, uh, an election that uh, it was, it was uh, uh, 
documented as being fraudulent by the Organization of American States, a uh, president that uh, had uh, actually been prohibited from uh, running uh, yet for another term uh, and yet decided to do so and so on and so forth. Uh, and then, you know, uh, if you take a country like Guyana, where there's a real crisis right there, there, the, the crisis is driven by something that's not necessarily uh, 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 the case in Latin American countries, and that is a very sharp division uh, between ethnic uh, populations in the country itself. If I, if I might make one point uh, uh, on this score right now, if there's something uh, positive about Latin America is that it's probably the only continent in the world where you don't have what the Italians call uh, irredentist politics, irredenta, which means that subalternate loyalties uh, trump, so to speak, uh, national identities. Uh, <clears throat> you have that in the Caribbean, you know, Indians versus Afro uh, uh, descendants and, and, and others. But in the rest of the uh, Latin America, you don't necessarily have this phenomena of subalternate loyalties, whether they are ethnic, whether they're religious, whether they're regional or so on and so forth, actually uh, attempting to establish themselves as a sovereign uh, nation state. That is, a, that is the fundamental problem in the 21st century right now in, in countries all over the world, including, of course, the rebirth of the subalternate loyalties in places like Europe, you know, Catalonia, you know, and so on and so forth. Uh, so th that's, that is, you know, a, 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 uh, a good thing uh, for Latin America. But I just want to put that parenthesis in, in there, uh, with the exception of Caribbean, ironically also with the exception of Canada, there really had not been these uh, sort of irredentist uh, uh, demands. Uh, I still remember De Gaulle when he went to Canada and he, and he yelled, Vive le, 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 le Québec libre, you know, uh, quite some time ago, you know. Uh, uh, Latin America is a continent then of fairly consolidated nation states, even though the tragedy of Latin America is that it has not been able to consolidate institutions in a, in a, in a very uh, strong way. Uh, the end of the Cold War, however, gave us a tremendous promise. There was a really significant shift. It was the first time in the history of Latin America that you had the development and the consolidation really of democratic institutions across the board. Uh, and, uh, you know, what you had was, uh, you know, with the exception of Chile, really, and Uruguay, and later on, Costa Rica, uh, the consolidation of of democratic institutions had always been a work in progress and it had not really gone that well. Uh, as I said earlier, uh, right after the Great Depression, right before the Great Depression, there seemed to be a very, very significant uh, and promising uh, period. I wrote a chapter for the Cambridge history on Latin America, on, on the evolution of democratic institutions, democracies in Latin America with Jonathan Hartland at the University of North Carolina. <clears throat> and we covered all that period. And but the, but the Great Depression put a the kibosh on, on a lot of the institutional uh, uh, progress that was being made. And from the 1930s until the 1980s, 40% of all changes of government were through military coups, from, through military coups. And then when the, what uh, some scholars called the bureaucratic authoritarian period came in, which came essentially after the overthrow of Frondizi in uh, Argentina in 63, and then the, you know, the, the military coup in uh, Brazil in 64, you really had these military establishments running most of the countries in the region. There are only three countries that avoided these bureaucratic authoritarian regimes um, uh, during that, that period. Actually, there, there are four. Uh, countries, uh, if you include Mexico, which did not have a military government, but was still pretty authoritarian. Ironically, the three were Colombia, Venezuela, and Costa Rica. Uh, and they came up with some uh, uh, elite packs that helped them prevent that, but everywhere else. And the two countries, perhaps with the longest trajectories, of uh, democracy were Chile and Uruguay, and they of course also succumbed during the period of the Cold War to this bureaucratic authoritarian military rule at the, during this period of time. So that was, uh, you know, uh, something. But with the end of the Cold War again, you know, we set out on a new trajectory. If you look at the, 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 the progress today, only 
in three countries have changes of government, or in two countries have changes of government been through classic military coups, twice in Haiti and once in Ecuador. So, you know, things have been, however, and I'll get to this a little bit later again, uh, 19 presidents now have not been able to finish her or his, their terms, uh, um, and, and have to resign. And I'll talk a little bit about that in, in, in a minute. Uh, the other thing that did happen with the end of the Cold War was also that the people realized that the import substitution industrialization model, which meant high tariffs and you try to create the industries locally, was simply not uh, working out. And that led to the lost decade of the 1980s in Latin America. Uh, and what we found was that with the with the end of the uh, of the of the military rule and so on, you got also the opening of these economies, and that tended to be a very positive thing. Tariff barriers were brought down. You had uh, free trade agreements uh, being signed with the United States and other countries, and the opening of these economies did lead not only to a period of significant progress in democratic rule, but at the same time also led to uh, a, 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 f a phenomenal expansion. Of, of economic activity, which led to a really significant decline in absolute poverty uh, levels. Uh, so those are the, these, these two phenomena, the, you know, the, the shifts in economic policy, uh, uh, partly driven also by the United States. It was you know, the US effort, the, what it was called the Washington Consensus to try to sort of get away from uh, these protected uh, uh, um, uh, economies uh, of the import substitution uh, industrialization variety that led to this uh, sort of thing. So that was, that was the, the, you know, the, 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 the good news was there. Of course, we face now something else. And let me get to that because that's really the, the, the key of what I've been asked to talk about. How come then have we suddenly seen, you know, the, the outbreak uh, in, in countries including uh, the, uh, Chile, uh, which had uh, probably the strongest, longest lasting democracy in all of Latin America. In fact, only 15 months of outright unconstitutional rule in Chile from the 1830s until the coup of 1973. That doesn't mean that the, there was, the, the suffrage was expanded early on. No, it took a long time. That doesn't mean that there wasn't, uh, you know, uh, women didn't have the right to, uh, to vote until much later. Yes, that's the, the case. But if you compare it with European countries, in fact, Chile was really very much on par with the evolution of democratic institutions. So what happened? You know, how come after the, the, the collapse of the Pinochet government, uh, the, the defeat of the Pinochet government, you know, and things going in the right direction, what happened? And here what we might say is, in fact, I wrote an article called Problems of Success in Chile. In some ways, the problems are due also to the fact that there was a lot of success. And the most important success, and I, I want to stress this because I think there's been a really significant misinterpretation in much of the media discussions of these sorts of things. The, the narrative is, oh, well, the countries have become much more unequal. You know the district, the Gini coefficients have uh, you know gone uh, south. You know uh, that uh, that in fact expanding the economies, uh, you know, the Washington consensus, uh, the neoliberal policies, as some people call, were mistaken, and uh, and we therefore have a situation of much greater inequality. Uh, that's simply not true. That's simply not true. In country after country after country, extreme poverty went way way down. And to take the case of Chile that I'm going to spend a little bit of time on now, uh, uh, in, in Chile in, in 1960, when I came to the United States, uh, about 52, 53% of, of, of the population lived in extreme poverty, in extreme poverty. Uh, today, it's 8%, you know, so it really is not true that, that, that in fact, there's a greater uh, inequality. What's happened is that the success, and this is the, the, the point of the problems of success, led to the creation and to the emergence of a new middle class, a new middle class, uh, people who didn't have an opportunity before, whose parents didn't even have floors in their houses or, or bathrooms in their homes, or their grandparents uh, uh, lived essentially uh, in the countryside and weren't even aware of what was going on 
in, in the rest of the country. Uh, this new middle class then, you know, is one that's striving, uh, that has a lot of ambitions, and yet it is found, and this is where there's a lot of commonality with other countries, that a lot of their hopes and expectations have been shattered, or they live with vulnerability. vulnerability. They're vulnerable, you know? Okay, you, you, know, you, you finally were able to buy that taxi cab, and uh, but you couldn't afford the insurance, uh, and uh, you know, and when you bought the taxi cab and you had a job and, and so on and so forth, you finally got the little house and you paid a, you're paying a lot on the mortgage, but everything's going okay because you have a lot of clients because uh, you know uh, Chile has become a really uh, important destination for tourists. Uh, but then you have an accident and that's the end, and uh, you so that you 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 feel like you're. In fact, there, you know, if I might put my academic hat back on again, there's this really, really influential book by Eric Wolf, uh, an, uh, an eminent an, uh, anthropologist called Peasant Wars of the 20th Century, where he looks back at the, at the, at the great revolutions of the 20th century in places like Vietnam, uh, in, in, in um, Algeria, uh, in, uh, in uh, Cuba, and other places like that. It's not the poorest peasants that were revolting. It was, as he pointed out, the middle peasants that were more affected by the changes in industrial uh, agriculture and things like that. Uh, you know, and they're in there, and uh, so they're the ones that were were driving this sort of thing. So what we find then uh, in a in in country after country in Latin America is the the frustration of sectors that finally thought that they would be able to to uh, make some progress. And if you add to that. Another dimension is that we also live in a world where people are much more aware of how other people live. And we also live in a world where people are much more prone to conspicuous consumption. <clears throat> when, when my dad used to take the train uh, to vote and wore his suit in Chile because that was a civic duty and so on and so forth, it was a country where people, you know, um, frowned upon conspicuous consumption, you know? The guy who showed up with a big car was somebody who was laughing at the poor, and then that was just not appropriate. There was a long sort of, a, there was a, uh, a tradition of, you know, that's gone by the wayside. People, well, so, so add to that, you know, the instant communications, the social media, the access to television and so on, people realize that other people really are living much better off than they are. And so this is what led to this, uh, this amazing development that took place in Chile, where suddenly the government uh, uh, countenanced the increase in subway uh, fares, a very small amount. And you had students all over the streets, People try to jump uh, the, into the subways and so on and so forth. They were they were they were affected because they felt like they were they were on a on a, at the at a potential margin and didn't want to fall back. And other people took advantage of it too. So you got uh, a, a significant you know frustration you know manifested. And at the at the outset, the government did not handle it well. You know. It said we're at war with you know uh, you know if you if you if you can't make your bus in the morning take two you know get up earlier and so on and so forth and that led to a significant uh, backlash uh, uh, at that time so that so so the the, the country faces a, a, a rather rather difficult uh, situation because of this now the parties have come together and they had proposed that in fact maybe we ought to do a constitutional change maybe there ought to be some way of getting this but i'll end with this point and that's where are the parties in latin america they've collapsed everywhere in other words people are frustrated by the inaction you know i said that 19 presidents did not finish their terms partly because they did not uh have uh uh, majorities in the Congress, and so this is a subject that I'm not going to get into now. I, I, the the, the this is where there's a crisis of presidentialism in Latin America, where you don't have safety valves that you find in a parliamentary form of government, where if you, you know, for some reason a president can't govern because he simply cannot get anything through Congress, you actually call a new election or something like that. You know, this has led to 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 significant. Uh, uh, complications and difficulties. But the most dramatic thing of all 
is the collapse of the identification of parties. When I was writing my first art, uh, books on Chile before the military coup, what was really as astonishing about a country like Chile or Uruguay and so on was a strong, strong party identification of most of the citizens. Everybody had a party that they belonged to. And people also responded, you know, to when they were asked, well, what, what are, are you left, right, or center? They would say, yes, I am left, you know, I'm right, I'm center. Today, 80% of the population, as opposed to 75% of the population, doesn't even say that they have any kind of identification with parties. It's happened in Mexico too, where the parties were not, because where you only had a one party system for a long, 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 long period of time. People just don't think that they count. Yeah. And, and with that, we have then, and I'll end with this, a real crisis of representation, which has also been aggravated in some countries by a crisis of accountability, which is the corruption that we've heard about a lot in other in countries. Where fortunately, you know, the judicial systems have been pushing back on that, the Odebrecht scandal and things like that. And then finally, uh, uh, those two things, the crisis of representation and the crisis of accountability has led to a crisis of governance. Uh, and today, if we face the shades of the Great Depression again and all of this, uh, we really are in a very bad moment. And uh, unfortunately, uh, the this promise uh, that Fukuyama also talked about at one particular point when he talked about the end of history, uh, unfortunately has come to somewhat disappointing end and who knows where we are in this particular context. So I'll stop there and I'd be delighted to, uh, to uh, answer any questions or try to uh, enter into a dialogue or a conversation with you. So thanks so much for this invitation. I'm very grateful for it. Well, Arturo, uh, thank you for an outstanding thank you for an outstanding presentation this morning uh, this afternoon we're we're very grateful for you making the time for that I neglected unfortunately at the beginning to remind participants that it's very easy to answer question to ask questions here and pose them for Arturo uh, if you have a computer uh, and simply mouse over the video picture You'll see a menu pops up, I think typically at the bottom of the screen with an option Q and A. Uh, click on it, or if you're using a tablet, use your finger to touch the screen and the menu will appear. Touch the Q and A button and type out your question. Uh, it'll appear in a question queue and I'll be able to read them to uh, uh, Dr. Valenzuela and give him a chance to answer. So while uh, participants are uh, entering their questions, I hope, uh, let me ask uh, Arturo a question to get us going. Um, you ended on the note, of course, of um, the coronavirus and the challenges that's going to pose to economies all over the Western Hemisphere, including our own, and what the, the, an open question, a very fertile area to talk about uh, what that might mean for that proverbial taxi driver you mentioned who just got, even before the crisis, just got to the cusp of success and then perhaps by accident or whatever seemed to fall backwards. But I'd like to ask a different question about parties. Colombia was perhaps the nation or one of two nations in Latin America that had the longest running and most stable two-party system between the liberals and the conservatives. But now, post Uribe, the president who, after uh, uh, his terms of office, successfully basically beat back the, uh, the uh, insurgency and created the conditions in which his successor could negotiate a peace plan with the FARC guerrillas, that two-party system, that stable two-party system has come undone. Maybe you could focus a little bit on Colombia as a case study here for us about how a two-party system, a long-running stable two-party system, comes apart in Latin America. Well, you know, I, I mentioned in my, in my talk earlier that um, uh, Colombia, along with Venezuela and Costa Rica, were the three countries uh, that avoided the military rule. The fourth country that avoided military rule was Mexico, but Mexico, of course, was an authoritarian state, so it was not. Uh, 
one of the ways, one of the reasons that Venezuela and Colombia avoided uh, that was that there was a strong pact put together by the elites on both, you know, coming together. And you were right to, to, to note that in Colombia, the, the great divide historically was between liberals and conservatives. Uh, uh, and uh, in fact, uh, many of the uh, civil wars in Colombia were, were fought by liberals versus conservatives, uh, you know, because each party was trying to find uh, its way to have sort of absolute uh, power. But, the, but when, when uh, uh, the, the, they got together, uh, uh, this is after the beginning of the Cold War, uh, and they put together a national front, they basically divided all power completely among them. And in the same way uh, that the Pacto de Punto Fijo in Venezuela divided power between the various different parties. But when they did that, it was sort of an elite arrangement that left out a lot of other sectors. And so there was this sort of pent up demand and that encouraged a lot of the sort of, uh, you, you know, uh, guerrilla movements and other things like that in uh, Venezuela, you know, uh, the, the, the contrast uh, of the Colombian political system was, was dramatic, for example, if you, can, if you compare it with a Chilean one, because in the Colombian political system, you had liberals and conservatives, uh, but you really didn't have anybody really on the far left or on the left, whereas the, the Chilean uh, uh, political system was one that evolved way back beginning in the 20, uh, at the beginning of the 20th century. Uh, when the founder of the Communist Party was actually elected to the Senate before the Russian Revolution. And so you had a political system, a party system that was much more akin to some of the European party systems as they evolved later on, where there was a strong socialist and communist party on the left, and then the uh, you know, center parties, uh, radical and Christian Democrats in the center, and then liberals and conservatives on the right. You know? And that allowed then for a far more uh, uh, inclusive democratic system uh, to 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 work itself through. Uh, uh, as I mentioned, that also has collapsed. But in in Colombia, if we if we go back to 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 your point directly, uh, people are rejecting uh, the the establishment parties. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, there's a new mayor of of, uh, of Bogota now, uh, and uh, her party is the Green Party, uh, and uh, so you. And, and the alliance that you used to have between, uh, uh, at times, conservatives and, 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 and liberals has, has gotten, uh, has faltered as, as well. So there is kind of a fragmentation of the party system in that sense. Uh, the danger when party systems collapse like this is that people then look for a savior. People look for a savior. You know, I don't believe in my party anymore. You know, who's going to come up? I hate parties. Uh, we all hate parties. Uh, and uh, parties are all corrupt or whatever. Uh, and then let's look for a savior. And then when saviors come around, guess what saviors do? They destroy institutions even more. They go after the Supreme Court. They want to get themselves reelected. They want to do all this sort of stuff. And that's kind of a, a pattern that you see both on the right and on the left in Latin America, maybe in Brazil and maybe in Mexico at this point. Uh, thank you, Arturo. Very helpful. Uh, the first question, uh, apart from my own, uh, 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 from our other participants comes to us from Ambassador Chorba, who asks simply, uh, could you tell us what the Cubans are up to in South America these days? Well, look, uh, I owe uh, Ambassador Chorba also the response to his question, and I'll take advantage of uh, the fact that I have the, and the clouds have moved over my, uh, my uh, skylight here, so I feel like I'm, I'm not uh, totally illuminated. Uh, and he asked me what the etymology of the, that my last name is, Valenzuela, you know, how come that sounds like Venezuela? Uh, and the answer is a very simple one, uh, and that is that, uh, Huela is a diminutive in Spanish, you know, small, you know, petite, you know, uh, the little things, you know. And so when the, when the uh, uh, you know, the uh, Spanish uh, uh, explorers were, went up the Orinoco River, it reminded them kind of of Venice with these little islands and things like that. And so they call that area Venezuela, a small Venice. Uh, well, my name is Valenzuela, my, you know, uh, on my father's, father's side. Uh, uh, and uh, that, of course, uh, sounds like another important city, uh, and that's Valencia in Spain, which was, of course, the seat of the Spanish uh, uh, colonial empire. Uh, 
And there was quite, quite a few little towns in, in, in Spain that were small Valencias. And that's where you get Valenzuela, small Valencia. So that's, uh, that's the, the nature, that's the etymology of the name. There are all kinds of other theories about it, uh, you know, having to do with Suela is also uh, the sole of a shoe. And some people said it's Valenzuela. So it's, so it is the cost of the, of the sole of a shoe. Uh, but that's, that's rubbish. It, it really has to do with uh, the, the fact that it, it, the name comes from, a, from our geographical designation. So that is the, an answer to his question. Now, could you clarify the... the yes, the, the, what are the Cubans up to in okay. South America these days? Well, look, the Cubans... Tim's, question, uh, Tim's substantive question. Sure. The Cubans, as you well know, uh, you know, suffered an enormous setback with the end of the Cold War. Uh, enormous setback, because they were so dependent, really, of, on their privileged relationship with the Soviet Union. Uh, and when that uh, relationship crumbled, uh, you know, they went into what was called a special uh, period. Uh, they continued to try to, uh, uh, it's, it's, the, it's the only totalitarian state in Latin America. And it's one of the only totalitarian, full totalitarian states that still exists in the world. I still like to go back to Juan Lins's, uh, uh, uh differentiations between uh, what you might called, uh, you know, democratic regimes, authoritarian regimes, and totalitarian regimes. This is a big, big difference between an authoritarian and a totalitarian regime. Authoritarian regime might, you know, encourages the private sector and all that kind of stuff. You still have very authoritarian rule, uh, but you really have a far more open, you know, civil society and, and, and that kind of thing. Cuba is a totalitarian country where the civil society is completely controlled by the state. You know, you're your job, your, your, your uh, housing, your uh, uh, cash awards uh, for food or whatever are all dependent on the state. Uh, anyway, this system collapses then, uh, um, the privileged system with the Soviet Union collapses. And so uh, Cuba has been trying to, uh, to continue to remain uh, in control. And Chavez reached out to the Cubans because of his antipathy against the United States. And I, we, we can go into why that existed. I met with Chavez five times. I had to deal with this guy when I was uh, at, at the White House initially, and then later uh, at, as an assistant secretary. And, um, uh, but Chavez turned towards the, the Cubans, you know, uh, and he began to be the key subst uh, 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 source of survival for the Cubans. Uh, by these huge grants of, uh, of petroleum, uh, which is how actually the Venezuelans also were able to get much of the Caribbean to uh, follow uh, Venezuela's dictates. They, you know, I was kind of embarrassed when I was assistant secretary that we didn't really have a really significant uh, aid portfolio uh, to, uh, to, to work with the Caribbean. Uh, but Chavez put, was putting hundreds of millions of dollars into Cuba and so on and so forth. So that's where the Cubans were. They were trying to survive, uh, you know, and keep their totalitarian state. And, the, and, and Venezuela did a great f favor to them in that sense. Uh, and uh, he, they didn't export agents to Venezuela that much. You know, there, there, there probably were some. Uh, it was mostly doctors. It was mostly, you know, you know they essentially had 20,000 uh, Cuban doctors. Uh, which gave uh, Chavez uh, in Venezuela a lot of uh, 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 grounds for, to argue that, you know, I'm really helping my people. And, uh, and so his popularity was based really on a lot of these social programs that the Cubans helped uh, design. But that's, uh, uh, are, what are they up to now? Now they're really in trouble. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, again, Cuba is really uh, f facing, uh, with the collapse of Venezuela is uh, devastating for, 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 for the Cubans. Uh, uh, and um, so that's, uh, I, you know, they don't really have that much influence in the region at all. Uh, it's not true that the Venezuelans and the Chileans were behind the, the protests in, in, in Chile. Um, um, the, the protests in Chile were really much more uh, a local phenomenon. You know, there might have been a few rabble-rousers, uh, but, uh, you know, the irony is that the government made that argument uh, oh, look, there are foreign agents right here coming in, you know, uh, to, to uh, essentially, you know, you know to, 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 to try to, to uh, uh, discredit uh, 
uh, a lot of the opposition elements uh, in the country. Uh, and many of them were, by the way, uh, driven by anarchists. Uh, or I'm not talking about, I'm not in, you know, in, in a position to defend uh, a lot of the people who were involved in this sort of thing, because not only uh, did delinquents and narco traffickers and so on sort of get involved, and there were some anarchists and others like that, but it, you know, it, it it was not a conspiracy that was exported from Cuba or Venezuela, and that's not the origins of this. It's, these were homegrown problems that were really significant. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Uh, the next question uh, uh, comes from Ambassador uh, Dick Holwell, uh, who was, of course, our ambassador in Ecuador. And behind it is a question from Ambassador Charlie Glazer, our former ambassador in uh, Salvador. But let me pose uh, Ambassador Holwell's question first. Uh, please address the situation in Ecuador. Uh, Lenin Moreno has restored a constitutional democracy, uh, but there are suggestions that two right-wing, center-right candidates from Guayaquil will run, uh, and on the left, a former president with a good record and an indigenous leaders will, leader will likely run as well. Uh, so uh, can you address Ecuador's political dynamic, uh, Arturo? Well, I appreciate the question. Uh, you know, uh, Ecuador, uh, unfortunately, uh, has one of the, the histories, I guess, of, of the, the you know, weakest uh, sort of uh, trajectory of consolidation of democratic institutions. Uh, uh, you know, there was a, uh, one president who was elected five times, but he only served one term because he was overthrown with the four, the other, other four times, uh, Velasco Ibarra. Uh, and, uh, you know, so this is a... a uh, in fact, you, you, in some ways, you have to give credit to, to Rafael Correa, you know, who was this, this uh, socialist president. He's really the first president to be able to get himself reelected and uh, to, you know, consolidate a certain amount of uh, of power. But you know, uh, uh, I uh, when I was in the White House, we had to deal with uh, uh, not earlier Bukaram who was overthrown, and then I had to deal with the resignation of Mawad when I was at the White House, and so on and so forth. So a very weak trajectory, really, of of, of democratic institutions. Uh, and Correa, you know, uh, got himself uh, reelected, and uh, it was fairly successful in 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 in, in appealing to the people. But you know, he also played uh, the uh, sort of left wing uh, card that Chavez was uh, was playing. And in fact, some of the problems of uh, of uh, uh, Ecuador also are linked very directly uh, to Venezuela. Uh, they're also linked to another thing that we haven't talked about, and that is the corruption scandals that emerge out of Brazil with the Odebrecht issue, you know. Uh, so you had uh, um, the Odebrecht scandal uh, affected many, 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 many countries in the region. It affected uh, Ecuador in a significant way. W what was behind that? It was Chavez's obsession with not wanting to send uh, his the Venezuelan oil as, you know, the, the country with the largest deposits in the world uh, to the United States. So, you know, he, he, he partnered with the Ecuadorans to, uh, you know, to rebuild uh, one of the refineries and uh, to actually uh, uh, build a new refinery and so on and so forth. For what? Uh, so that the oil could be shipped to China uh, and places like that and not to the, the United States. And this led then to, to uh, and this happened in various other places. Lula did the same thing in, in, in Brazil as well. And the Odebrecht company of, uh, in Brazil were very happy to, uh, you know, get in on a lot of these sorts of things in exchange, of course, for a lot of bribing and so on and so forth. So this led to a situation, I don't know, we've probably seen in the paper that in Ecuador, the, the, the prosecutors now are accusing the former president of significant, significant uh, um, um, uh, corruption uh, and, uh, you know, theft of government uh, uh, assets and so on and so forth. So this is uh, an issue. Now, the, you mean the former president Correa, Rafael Correa? President Correa, you know, for him, was indicted, in fact. Yeah. Uh, he, he's still living in, in Belgium, so he hasn't gone back for it, but he was indicted and he's been accused of, of uh, you know, this is not him, but many people in his, uh, in his government, including his, uh, you know, uh, the first former vice president, actually, of, uh, of Lenny Moreno, uh, was, was also accused of, of this uh, uh, um, uh, theft, uh, you know, fraud and, uh, and uh, corruption. Uh, 
So that, that underlies some of the difficulties uh, in Ecuador now. Now, there's no question that Moreno has tried to take the country in a different direction, to try to, you know, uh, get away from the ideological uh, bent, to try to sort of strengthen, consolidate democracy. He has encouraged uh, the prosecutors that have been uh, carrying on these, uh, but he's still facing the, you know, significant uh, problems. Uh, you know, opposition from some of the indigenous groups, opposition from uh, from uh, the, you know, the, this has been a country very much divided between um, the power in Quito and power in Guayaquil, and that still remains uh, the case. Mm -hmm. So, uh, let, you know, I'm a little bit more hopeful about Ecuador than I used to be, but it's still facing very significant challenges. Um, thank you. Uh, 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 uh. A further question from Ambassador Charlie Glazer. You previously addressed his uh, uh, a, a question he had about the extent of uh, outside agitators uh, uh, provoking the uh, disturbances in Chile. But how close to the surface do you think the boiling point is currently in Chile? Maybe a bit difficult to judge since we haven't been able to travel uh, uh, internationally for a number of weeks now, and obviously the coronavirus uh, shutdowns exacerbate conditions in every country. But if you were a weather forecaster here, what would you forecast the uh, political climate to be in Santiago? Well, you know, the unfortunate thing is that, uh, that an agreement really was put together. It was reached. It was driven by the political parties, but it had support from some of the groups uh, in some of the, the parties on, on, uh, on the left as well uh, that uh, were involved in some of the protest movements. Uh, a group uh, called, uh, you know, Democratic Revolution, for example, that now has several seats in the, in the, in the Congress. Uh, and uh, they came around and the, 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 the demand really was, look, we need to change the constitution that uh, we inherited from from uh, General Pinochet, and uh, and so a process was put into place where they were going to hold a referendum this month, you know, on a new constitution, uh, and uh, uh, citizens were going to be asked, to, you know, uh, who do you want to uh, um, um, be members of this uh, of this uh, constituent assembly? Do you want just citizens, uh, or do you want citizens and legislators? Uh, uh, do you want uh, parity, you know, for women and men, uh, and so on? So, a series of questions, and then once that the referendum was going to take place, then in the uh, uh, um, elections that are supposed to be held in November, uh, you would have an actual election of a constituent assembly, and the constituent assembly then, if it, if it had been, if it's approved in this referendum, all of that has been put on hold. That's the problem, you know. So here's where the the uh, um, coronavirus uh, has really, really uh, made things much more difficult, uh, because Chile is now dealing with the political crisis that has not that had that had at least a path towards resolution, uh, and. Um, uh, and, and a lot of people hoped that that would, would, would take place. And now a lot of that has been put on, on hold. Um, the expectation still is that there will be at some point a referendum, that there will be uh, a demand for a constituent assembly. And then the real question is what goes into that constituent assembly? And since my own scholarship deals with things like constitutional reform and sorts of issues, that's the kind of uh, uh, issue that I've been working on not only in Chile, but also uh, in other countries uh, having to do with, with the nature of, of, of uh, executive legislative relations and political parties and that kind of thing. Uh, but at this particular point, it's, it's really kind of on hold. This little virus, you know, the, the revenge, I guess, of the microorganisms of the world against uh, the human species has been pretty serious, you know. And maybe in some cases they go up and they get into your cerebellum and they create some kind of a fascist uh, response. I don't know, uh, but at least you you know, or at least the viruses are competing with the um, with the bacteria, and they think that they can uh, destroy with a human species. I I I don't want to be too frivolous about this because this is such a serious uh, thing. Uh, but you know, in fact, everything is on hold as well uh, in attempting to resolve some of these fundamental problems. Arturo, thank you. 
there aren't any further questions in the question queue, but let me ask participants if you have a question further for Arturo. We have him for a few more minutes, and actually there's no absolutely magical time about uh, 1 p.m. for stopping this seminar if uh, questioning uh, went on a bit longer. Uh, but uh, if there are any further questions, let's see if they pop up here quickly. Arturo in the question queue. And I'm not seeing any, but as I wrap up, if one pops in, perhaps we can uh, interrupt the wrap up. Um, <laughs> with, uh, with that, Arturo, I would like to thank you very much for making your time available this afternoon. Uh, to speak to us, the members of the Council of American Ambassadors gathered for this virtual roundtable. We haven't figured out a way to deliver virtual lunch so far, but we can at least deliver virtual wisdom and virtual information, thanks to you. Um, and for the other participants in today's roundtable, I'd like to thank you on behalf of uh, Ambassador Chorba, our president, myself, and the staff of the Council for joining us uh, in this first foray into a virtual ambassadors roundtable. We hope it was successful and informative and interesting. And uh, I'd like to advise you to keep an eye peeled for the next uh, uh, such announcement, uh, a program with uh, Ambassador Ryan Crocker, uh, the dates for which we are currently working out and which should be announced shortly. We think it will be of high interest to everyone. So uh, with that, uh, ah, a new question has popped into the queue. So let me check and see what it is. Uh, uh, actually, yes, it's a comment from Ambassador Holwell, not really a question. So with that, let us uh, say farewell for today, and please keep your eye peeled for the, uh, the next announcement of the Council's next virtual roundtable. Arturo, once again, thank you very much for your participation. It's been an honor and a privilege to join you as well. Thanks. All the best, and please stay safe, everyone. Thank you so much for your good wishes. Bye-bye.